0: Lord, we want to come and uh, seek to understand your word for ourselves now this morning. We want to ask that you would give us new understanding, that you would help us to uh, understand your word as it was written down thousands of years ago and apply it to ourselves today. Please, Lord, be amongst us and help us. Give us alert minds, willing spirits, Lord, wills that are prepared to bend to yours so that we can be the people you've called us to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I suspect actually one of the most uh, commonly held views about religion in our world is that all religious people are sincerely searching after God. There may be some agnostics who are not much interested in God. There may be some atheists who are some sincerely convinced that there is no God but most, most people have a bit of religion in them and most people um, I think like to think that they're a bit like um, uh, George Harrison of uh, the Beatles. He spent uh, the second half of his life searching for God. Most of us uh, may not do it quite with George Harrison's uh, intensity, but a large proportion of us, one way or another, search after God. And uh, I think there is a lot of evidence to suggest that people generally are searching after God. As a Christian, I'm constantly surprised by the frequency with which modern films seem to express a longing for the the God who is revealed in the Bible. It's not usually vocalized as that, but when we start to, to understand what the characters in films are searching for, we as Christians... Uh, again and again see that their longing would be perfectly satisfied by Jesus Christ. The need to, to know and be known by the real God is actually, it, is actually built very, very deep into our souls. In a sense, in that sense, everyone, I think, whether they are religious or agnostic or, uh, or atheist, are actually searching for what could only be supplied by the living God whether they're searching for love or permanence or truth or forgiveness or peace, they will only find it in their Creator. And the Bible affirms very, very clearly that uh, um, people in general are searching after God. The uh, Apostle Paul, for instance, speaking to a group of um, philosophers in Athens, said um, uh, this, from one man... God created all nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand which should rise and fall. He determined their boundaries. His purpose in all this was that the nations should seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. That's, um, I hope, there. But there is actually another truth, another very, very important truth that the uh, the Bible affirms equally strongly. The Bible says, somehow, in our natural state, we human beings always, in the end, shy away from God. We are um, like like feral dogs running wild on the street. We, we've run away from the stability and security of our kind, caring, loving, heavenly Father and decided to fend for ourselves. We've decided we would rather raid his dustbins for, than, than, than take uh, the food that he offers. Though again and again we may be, may be tempted to by the attractions of once again returning to domesticity. Again and again, as we approach our Heavenly Father, we decide to turn away, to sleep rough rather than accept the comfort of his house. Though we long for God, we always, in the end, turn away from him. So important for us to understand that as we uh, approach the end of, of uh, uh, Zechariah. So, the first six chapters, if you were here, described for us in Zechariah's vivid images, images God's plan to forgive and to restore his people and finally to eliminate all evil. That is Zechariah's gospel, that is Zechariah's good news. Chapters 7 and 8, though, of Zechariah introduced us to a real problem. Zechariah revealed that the people could also easily go through the motions of worshipping God, but in fact, their hearts were a million miles from him. How are our hearts, then, going to be turned back towards God so that he can forgive us, so that the gospel, the good news, can be our good news? Because we must be in no doubt, there is no forgiveness with God unless our hearts are centered on Him. And last week, we saw finally in chapter 11 how deep that problem is. If you were here, you'll remember that Zechariah was told to pasture God's people like a good shepherd because they were oppressed sheep under the power of murderous shepherds, the leaders in Israel. So he did. He cared for them. He drove away the evil shepherds. But the people hated him. They rejected him. The good shepherd. He warned them that they were driving away God from their very midst, and they responded in terms that uh, indicated they thought that was no, no more significant than the accidental death of a slave. As Jeremiah said many, many years earlier, the prophets give false testimonies, the priests rule with an iron hand, and worse yet, my people like it that way. There is a rebellion in us, which is, which is so deep, we would rather put up with false religion, false teachers, false promises, than actually come to terms with the true and living God. The Apostle Paul summarizes this in his letter to the Romans, with a whole series of quotes from, uh, from the Old Testament. As it is written, he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. How are we going to be reconciled with God then if this rebellion is so deeply entrenched in our hearts? We must come to the point of asking that question, asking that question with passion if we are to understand the significance of Zechariah 12. Because Zechariah um, uh, 12 begins to give us the answer to that question. In a sense, it's God's last battle. His last battle initially with our hearts. From verse 10 of uh, chapter uh, 12, as we saw just now, Zechariah begins to describe a change of heart. Look at verse 10 again. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, grieve bitterly for him, as one grieves for a firstborn son. First of all, we need to understand the nature of the change that Zechariah is describing. God will pour out a spirit of grace and supplication, he says. What does it mean for God's people to receive a spirit of grace? It could mean that God's people will receive grace, will receive God's free gift, a gift they don't deserve. But Zechariah is describing Not so much God's gracious gift, but a change that happens in our hearts, which is described as a spirit of grace. He's saying our hearts need to function in a new way. Our hearts need to live according to a new set of laws, the laws of grace, not now of justice, not now of just retribution. But everything within us needs to be changed and will be changed so that we are able to receive God's grace and able to give grace to other people. I will pour out on my people a spirit of grace, he says. And a spirit of supplications. So that supplication, a spirit of supplication is, is Zechariah's way of uh, describing hearts that that freely turn to God and cry for his mercy. Psalm 130 that was read just a little while ago includes the same word, and it's translated there, cry for mercy, I cry for mercy. God will enable us to come before him and cry to him, have mercy on me, God. But in our natural state, we don't do that. That's what we need to understand. In our natural state, we do not do that. In our natural state, we say, it's not my fault, God. These are all the reasons why I am not responsible for the sins that I've done, God. Surely, God, you can't call that a sin, can you? You must have been having a bad day, God, when you defined that as forbidden. Here's the deal I'm giving you, God. I've done pretty well in my life, so I deserve to be forgiven of all those minor things. That is a horrible blasphemy. It is a terrible misunderstanding. It reveals a hardness in our hearts which will not lead us to heaven but rather will take us straight to hell. But that is what springs from our hearts naturally again and again and again. We will not live by grace. We will not cry out to God for mercy. But God says, I will change that. Look too as well at uh, the, uh, the focus of the change that Zechariah promises. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. This is God's speaking. God has been pierced by his people, but actually in the same sentence, it becomes someone other than God. They will mourn for him, it says, as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him, as one grieves for a firstborn son. It's not surprising that when uh, the Apostle John wrote his gospel, he said that, his, that this prophecy had been fulfilled in Jesus. Because Jesus was God's one and only sons. When they pierced his hands and his feet to hang him on the cross, when after his death they pierced his side with the sword, in one sense they were piercing God, killing God because he was God the Son. But in another sense, they were piercing him, Jesus on the cross. The focus says Zechariah, of the change that God will achieve in our hearts is that we will mourn for Christ's death. Grieve bitterly for Christ's death because we are the ones who pierced him. We are the ones who killed him. He is the one we pierced. Of course we weren't there. But the death of God the Son became a divine necessity because of our sin, because of my sin. As the old dem um, hymn goes, "Teach me that if no other but I had sinned alone, yet still thy blood, Lord Jesus." Thine only must atone. The focus of the change of heart that God brings about is that now we look on the cross and we grieve because we say, he died for me. He was pierced because of what I have done in my life. He's God's one and only Son. He's God's firstborn. And yet I caused him to die. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers, It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Blessed are those who mourn, said Jesus, for they will be comforted. So it is that once our hearts have been changed, once we learn to mourn the death of Christ in that way, And to see ourselves in that light, we are open to real comfort. Zechariah explains as well in this section the fruit of the change that he anticipates. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. John's describes in his Gospel the way the blood and the water flowed from Jesus's side when he was pierced. We know that he had Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 in his mind because he quotes it. Could it be that he describes that flow of Jesus' lifeblood, that flow of water as well, which often symbolize cleansing from sin? Could it be that he describes that incident, partly because he has this this verse in, in his mind? On that day, a fountain was opened to cleanse God people from their sins. Interestingly, the other fruit of this great change is that prophets are banished. Verse two On that day I will banish the names of the idols from the land, and they will be remembered no more, declares the Lord. I will remove from both the prophets uh, both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. Many people suggest that he's talking about removal of false prophets here. Um, because there were plenty of them in Zechariah's day. But the text doesn't say that. It says, he will remove prophets. Prophecy will cease. If you know um, the book of Acts, you'll know that there are some prophets that still uh, pop up in the book of Acts. But they are very different from these great Old Testament prophets. In fact, says the whole Bible, such prophecy has ceased. And the book of Revelation tells us exactly why. Chapter 19, verse 10 says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, there is nothing of significance left to prophesy about in the future. These Old Testament prophecies were looking forward to Jesus. But there is no no longer any need for them. Because now he's come. Now we've seen with a clarity that Zechariah longed to see with. Indeed, um, says uh, verse 5, if you look down to it, it actually will become more honourable to be a farmer than a prophet in those days. But let me go back to the most important thing that we must learn this morning. The central truth that Zechariah wants to teach us. The source of the change is God. God is the source of this change. I, he says in verse 10, I will pour out a spirit of grace and supplication. On our own, we hate God's instructions. On our own, we hate the shepherds God sends us. On our own, we hate God. On our own, we hate hearing the Bible explained. Our natural desire is to set up a religious system which goes some way towards satisfying our need for God, but actually, in the event, keeps him out of the picture. Actually, in the event, closes this book which speaks to us of the real God and tries to make up something which will give us enough comfort without actually having to meet the real God. Our natural state is so deeply rooted in our hearts we can do nothing to change it. That's what the Bible says. Nothing at all. The first six chapters of Zechariah gave us that extraordinary, wonderful vision of God's intention to forgive us, to fill us with the light of his presence, to make us into a great community like a city without walls, and finally to eradicate all evil. But by the end of chapter 11, it is clear that in the end, people hate it. In the end, people will not choose it. In the end, people will set up some alternative which pretends to worship God but actually hates him, which pretends to shepherd God's sheep but actually is fattening them up for slaughter. And both the shepherds and the sheep will love it. That's what Zechariah says. See, it may be that you've been on on a spiritual search for a long, long time. Sometimes with greater intensity than others. Occasionally going to church, perhaps occasionally going to other sorts of places of worship, sometimes thinking a bit, sometimes letting it lie. You never felt you quite got there. There is a reason for that. On our own we will always shy away. knowing the real God. On our own we will always be like wild dogs, perhaps are tempted by the meat for a while, but would never get so close as to allow the master to grab us. So that's the way we are. If we will not accept that, we will never find God. If we will not own up to that, we are not going to heaven. It's not me saying that. It is the Bible, absolutely clearly. We are dead, says Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. Dead, unable to respond unless God gives us life. There is no one who understands, says, says Paul in Romans chapter 2. No one, not, not a one. All have turned away, he says in Romans 3 again. There is only one person who can change your heart. Right now there will be some of us who are not interested in that. Perhaps there will be some who are. Only God can give us his spirit of grace. Only God can make our hearts truly cry out for mercy. Only God can help us to see that the death of Christ was death for my sin, that I must grieve over because I caused it. Only God can cleanse us from sin. Only God can help us to see Jesus is the centre of everything. Only God can make the gospel good news for me. Only God can do it. And he will. When we let go of our foolish efforts to do it by ourselves, when we accept we are spiritually dead and need new life, when we accept we are utterly ignorant unless he speaks the truth to our hearts, he will do it though. Indeed, he promises to do it to everyone, every single person who gives up that foolish, fruitless effort to construct something which satisfies their thirst for God and says simply God I give up you change me I need your grace God I'm crying out to mercy for, to you for mercy because you see that is a reliable sign God has given begun his work in us I can't achieve that. I can't achieve that in anyone else's heart here. It's a matter of the deepest sadness in me that that I speak. And in some people there is no response, no interest. Because they're happy. but if you see you need that you know you want that and I'm saying to you this morning give up on all those false efforts and accept God's grace cry to him for mercy the rest of the story in Zechariah moves on there Pretty quickly, we haven't got time to look at them uh, um, much. The uh, shepherd is struck in chapter 13, verse seven. Um, in, uh, in chapter 12, it was the, the one that, uh, he was the one that they pierced. But now, this is God's initiative. Yes, says the New Testament, God took the initiative to send his Son into the world that we could be saved. There is a, a, a long description of, of purifying fire where some fall away and others, though they suffer, suffer uh, uh, troubles and difficulties, are answered by God as they cry to him. Yes, if you're a Christian here, don't expect it to be easy. The last 2,000 years have been that period that Zechariah describes. But I want just to end a whole study in the series of Zechariah by looking at the last couple of verses. Just quickly. Chapter 14, verses 20 and 21. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty and all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. On that day there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. See, in Israel's society, holy to the Lord was inscribed on the clothes of the high priest. Certain receptacles were kept sacred in front of the altar, to be used for worship of God. But, says Zechariah, what I see is everything holy. What I see is the the horses working in the fields being holy. I see ordinary common activity of sitting down and making a meal being holy. That's begun to be realized in our walk as Christians now. Where we are, a holy people, our lives are worship to God. But finally, that will be fulfilled in heaven. Don't think of heaven as harps and lyres and clouds. Everywhere the Bible describes it, it describes it as normal life, but without sin, without pain, without suffering, and without death. And here's another example of it. Normal activities of work and eating. Holy to the Lord. That is where God's creation is heading. And we can only be part of that if we come to the end of ourselves and ask for God's grace and cry for His mercy. Perhaps you haven't been searching, not particularly interested in God. Perhaps you have been. Let me say to every one of us, there is only one hope. Not that I will find God, but that God will find me and pour out His Spirit in my life. And all I can do is say, Lord God, please do it for me. Let's pray. Perhaps you want to be honest before God. He's the only one that matters here. Honest before God where you stand with them, O oh God, our Heavenly Father, for each of us bowed before you here, we pray that you would help us to give up our foolish self constructed efforts to be right with you. Pour out on us a spirit of grace and supplication, we pray. Spirit which cries out, Lord, have mercy and bring peace. Amen.